Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on our podcast on point tonight. Half a billion in corporate welfare for an industry that is already very heavily subsidized. Good investment? Maybe not. Polls have Joe Biden winning in a landslide, but then along came Polly. Her artificial intelligence shows a surprise swing in Trump's favor. It's called the Great Barrington Declaration, why thousands of doctors and scientists have actually signed on to a movement arguing that shutdowns are doing more harm than good and the cure is costlier than the disease. Let's talk about that. Your point. You just don't ever get the point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. With the combined contributions from Ford, Ottawa, and the province, today's announcement represents the largest investment in Ontario's auto sector in over 15 years. This is a historic moment. This will support and protect our auto sector's made in Ontario advantage. It's also very expensive. I mean, the good news, lots of jobs have been saved to build electric cars at Ford and Oakville. The bad news, the taxpayers are once again footing the bill because politicians, they do love their corporate welfare. Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, October the 8th. I hope you're having a great day as we kind of slide on into the long weekend here. Soon enough. And a great... Um, for good news in the auto sector, I guess, as the Oakville Ford plant is given half a billion dollars from the Ford and Trudeau government. And this is, of course, as you've been hearing, uh, they can upgrade the plant to build five new electric car models. And so on the surface, it sounds like, okay, great news, because Ford itself is going to invest $1.2 billion. You've got the jobs. There's going to be spinoffs for the auto sector. All good. The other part of this deal is that Ontario will uh, mine cobalt so they can make the uh, not-so-friendly, environmentally-friendly uh, you know, batteries. But job creation isn't true job creation if the government has to subsidize those jobs. And that's kind of all we seem to do these days, because politicians are addicted to it, and the companies know, hey, we can get it. So is this really an investment? I mean, it's made in Ontario, but it is thanks to Ontario's because you know, Ontarians because we're covering the tab. And that does not mean there are not going to be positive spinoffs. There absolutely will be. But when it comes to auto companies, forgive my skepticism, but we have not been treated historically well, we being the taxpayers, by auto companies. Remember, they got their bailout in the 2008 meltdown. And of course, we did not get paid back. Now, Ford didn't get any of that bailout money, so they shouldn't be lumped in. But we did... We got a screw job from the auto companies. They bailed. And while the politicians, you know, they're going to jump up and down and promise, you know, this is investing in future. My concern is, you know, we don't know when or if electric cars will ever be in demand. I mean, of course, more and more come into the market, but electric cars today are selling because they come with big subsidies. So are we also going to have to subsidy, you know, subsidize these cars? 
do we have to subsidize building infrastructure for charging stations? Because you will recall 2018, Doug Ford campaigned on this. And he promised not only end corporate welfare, but he also rightly canceled the $14,000 Tesla subsidy that the uh, wind government brought in. But now the feds have a program offering $5,000. And this year alone, Tesla has gotten 60 million bucks from this program. To which I say, why do the taxpayers get stuck buying very expensive toys for rich people? In my mind, you know, if people want electric cars and there's a demand, then we shouldn't have to keep dangling these very expensive carrots. But here is the prime minister's view. Right now, because it's a new technology, uh, zero emission vehicles and battery powered vehicles uh, can be more expensive than uh, their uh, gas-powered counterparts. But we've seen with technologies, the more people adopt them, the more uh, innovators uh, work on bringing down those costs, uh, the more it's uh, an easier choice to make for the pocketbook and not just for the environment. So I will continue to encourage uh, all governments across this country to do their part and encourage people to be able to do the right thing for their families, for their kids, for their pocketbooks, and for the environments at the same time. You know, the Trudeau government, I mean, they have not presented data to back up if electric cars are actually lowering emissions. And, you know, we're, we're not driving around in, in you know, an Eldorado, the Eldorado Cadillac anymore from 76. So we don't get those big gas guzzlers. And so the technology we use in cars today makes them pretty efficient. You know, um, so the way I look at this investment, which is what we call it, investment, it guarantees not only Ford's going to do well off this, but it's not going to be the last handout because once one company sees it, they're going to say, oh, wait, hey, hey, what about me? We want more of that. Especially, you know, um, they know that this government is so obsessed with all things climate change. So, I mean, is this good news? I mean, it might be for the politicians. It might be long-term for us. But certainly I think the taxpayers, you know, have doled out enough to these companies. I mean... You know, need only look to a Bombardier to see how uh, badly it's been squandered. But we will, uh, Vic Fidelli is going to join me at seven and I will ask him all about this. You know, why is it that um, we can't companies just to invest here on their own? Why do we always have to give them, you know, these huge incentives? And maybe he can shed light that somehow this is different. So we'll do that at seven. And, uh, we, you know, we continue going back and forth. We're still debating shutdowns. And, I, you know, we get the strong indication today from Dr. Williams that uh, decisions have been made. He wouldn't say anything today, which is wrong. If you're going to, you know, dangle, uh, I guess, a carrot and say, you know, I've put my recommendations forward to the premier's office and uh, we will be discussing something. Well, just tell us. Just tell people. We deserve to have that information. But we know Toronto Health has been demanding that we shut down large portions of, of the sectors that um, like the hospitality sector, gyms, those kinds of things. Now, the premier has been demanding the data. You know, show me the data before I destroy thousands of lives. But I was reading about a new global um, movement, an initiative driven by thousands of experts who agree with them. It's called the uh, Great Barrington Declaration. And this started with three epidemiologists out of Harvard, Oxford and Stanford. And they're push, pushing back against the popular opinion of locking down because they no longer support the draconian measures, saying that it actually does more harm than good. 
And since they've spoken out, 6,000 other doctors and scientists around the world have signed on to this. And since going public, then tens of thousands have also added their names around the world. And what they're suggesting is, you know, we've got to get smart about fighting this virus instead of just turning to destructive policies, things like shutdowns. So they agree with the premier, you know, on data because they say we have to have a data driven approach, one that will protect the vulnerable. We know who those are, but allows the rest of the population to live, you know, free, but reducing risks. So they argue things. Yes. Mask up, social distance, and of course, bulk up healthcare. That's how they say you manage this. And then they also argue that crushing entire economies and communities has such a lasting consequence that, in other words, it's costlier than the cure. And we've heard that. But they say, quote, the most compassionate approach that balances the risks and benefits of reaching herd immunity is to allow those who are at minimal risk of death to live their lives normally, build up the immunity in the virus through natural infection, while protecting those who are at highest risk. We call that focused protection. And their concern, and we will, you know, we talk about it on the show regularly, is that long-term mental and financial damage is going to just cause such irreparable damage with, with the poor paying the very biggest price. And we know a lot more about COVID than we did in the first wave. We know who's most at risk. We have more knowledge about treatment. And we also know children aren't at risk like older people are. And we also know depression, anxiety, mental illness are starting to get up to the record numbers. And so this is, you know, a balanced approach that we are needing, not destruction. I mean, maybe it's just easier for the experts to say shut things down because, well, they know how broken healthcare is. So let's not fix that. Let's not think outside the box. Let's just shut things down. Well, you know, I'm not so, <laughs> I'm not so sure that's that's the right thing to do. And um, at eight o'clock, I'm going to speak with one of the doctors, a Canadian doctor who's actually signed on to this, and he can explain. Um, the approach. We'll also chat about the debate later in the show, mainly that fly. The fly got very comfy on Mike Pence's head. Sat there for two minutes and three seconds. I think he got stuck in his hairspray. But I thought uh, Pence was far more substantive on issues. He held his own. But of course, uh, all really Kamala Harris had to do was show up and and present and introduce herself to people. And she was she, the, the bar was set fairly low for her. But I love how people are like, oh, she's going to be the next president. I'm like, well, I thought Joe Biden was running for president. No, 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 no. I mean, it's funny on the left. They all know Joe Biden's not competent. They all know that he probably shouldn't be running. And they're quite comfortable knowing that the vice president would just move on up to presidency. But they don't actually know what she stands for. Like, she is against fracking. She kept saying she wasn't. I mean, it's on record 20 different times that she's against fracking. She's for the new green energy deal. She's for universal health care. She's quite left. And some of the things she said about China and Iran were downright uh, wonky. So her foreign policy was anything but uh, but comforting. So um, we'll talk a little bit about this because I know that the uh, polling has Biden winning in a landslide. But there is one pollster here. Polly, remember Polly? Polly's the uh, artificial intelligence pollster called Brexit, called the federal election that just passed by two seats. Got the last provincial election and uh, has gotten the last 20 big referendums and um, uh, elections right. And so 
Just in the last 24 to 48 hours, Pauly has seen a very sudden and unexpected swing, telling us that Trump's not out. Well, they are good jobs, but if we're paying for those jobs, if we're subsidizing those jobs, is that actual job creation? So that was Doug Ford at the Ford plant today in a joint announcement with the federal government that uh, we are going to be giving the American-owned Ford plant half a billion dollars in corporate welfare. And this is something Doug Ford said in 2018 he would get rid of. But, of course, it is something that politicians of all stripes are addicted to and businesses know they can get. But it's also for electric cars, another industry heavily subsidized. And if demand for electric cars is so great, then why do we have to keep paying people to buy them? Aaron Woodrick is executive director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And, you know, we knew this announcement, Aaron, was coming out. It's half a billion dollars. That is not a small amount. Um, but the, the question I asked, you know, Vic Fidelli is, you know, can we not get investment in this country or the province of Ontario anymore without paying people and basically bribing them? Yeah, I mean, the B word is a strong word, but I can't think of another word for it. I mean, look, it dropped the pretense. Everybody knows what happened here. Look, Ford could, Ford's going to build electric cars. The only question is where? And so it becomes this essentially a bidding war about who wants to give them the biggest handout to get them to come to Ontario. And, and we, we won that contest. Hooray. Uh, the thing, though, Alex, is you tend to only, the only thing you've won is the right to bid the next time around. Because you know what's going to happen five years, 10 years down the road is they're going to come back and say, hey. We're, uh, we're, we're not doing great. Um, and guess what? Uh, Indiana or Ohio or Michigan's come along and they've offered us X billion. What, what can you offer? Like, this is the game we get into every time we do this. And it's infuriating. And it's, it's also extremely disappointing to hear a politician like Doug Ford and, and ministers in his government who explicitly oppose this stuff aggressively when it was the liberals doing it. And now suddenly they're in office and it's like it's all down the memory hole. So it's just it's really disappointing to see that. Yeah, I mean, the pandemic will be blamed for changing everything and we've got to get back to business, um, you know, uh, but but again, once you've done it this many times, it's not too long because we, of course, we still have the general plant that's not doing anything. And so is GM going to come forward and other companies, um, you know, going to come forward and say, well, look, we can do electric cars as well. Um, but, you know, I, I look back to that time in the spring when all these manufacturers that were shut down and then called on to do their part, none of them were... Uh, to my knowledge, unless you know otherwise, were offered money, uh, corporate welfare, to turn on a dime and start producing PPE. They just said, what can we do? Let's do it. And they contributed to the economy, even though they themselves were losing their original business. They just did it without this subsidy. Yeah, th that's the reality. It's the untold story. Is a lot of businesses don't need the subsidy. They don't expect the subsidy. And for some reason in this country, in this province, there are certain industries that are always treated as different for whatever reason. Uh, you saw it. It's not just the pandemic either, right? Like Doug yeah. Ford's government gave money to Maple Leaf to build a chicken plant in London with the feds. And then, uh, you know, and then we come back to the traditional players. Uh, they, we were told how many times Bombardier was a smart investment. It wasn't. <laughs> we were told bailing out GM was going to be smart. Ten years later, they shut down the Oshawa plant. I mean, we've seen this movie so many times before that I'm extremely confident in predicting this is not the last time we're going to have Ford coming back for subsidies.
Right. And, and Ford did pay back the money, but we did generally get screwed by uh, by the auto sector in the last bailout. But there are a lot of sectors that need help. Certainly the energy sector, they've gotten nothing. Uh, the airline sector, they're going to be looking at this saying, hold on a second, where's our uh, piece of the pie? And so it, it creates this uh, addiction that, um, you know, hands come out and there'll be a lot of expectations and other big industries that say, well, if you help them, why aren't you helping us? Especially when the investment is being made into an industry that everyone talks about as being the future, but so far it hasn't proved to be what the market wants because electric cars are popular with uh, those in the climate crowd, but the market says the only way people want to buy them is if you pay them to buy them with big subsidies. Yeah, you know, the the electric car sort of revolution is always just around the corner, right? And maybe someday it will come. I'm ambivalent on that. If if they can make cars that are great and have good range and people want to buy them, more power to them. But it's not the job of taxpayers to subsidize that. And it's certainly not, I'm certainly not true that governments have a crystal ball and are better at guessing what the next big thing is. If anything, they're far worse at it because it's not their area of expertise, and they're, they're motivated for political reasons, not for, for economic. Right. And Doug Ford canceled, rightly, the Tesla subsidy that was uh, given out by the uh, uh, Kathleen Wynne government, the $14,000 to buy these luxury cars. And so it's not going to be a great look if all of a sudden the provincial government starts subsidizing electric cars. Having said that, there is a federal program already doing so. And they've paid out, uh, I think the dollar figure is upwards of $180 million for people to buy these very kind of expensive toys. And then you read through the fine print to see a company like Tesla. Um, they have gotten $60 million in one year of taxpayer money for people to buy very, very expensive toys. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a pure windfall for these people. I'm sorry, if you're in a position to buy a $55,000 car, you, you're doing okay and you don't need a taxpayer subsidy. Yet that's exactly who is getting the benefit of this. So it's going in a Tesla's pocket. It's saving money for people who can already afford $50,000 cars. I mean, this is such a giant waste of money. If you want, if you have the means, you want to buy an electric car, fill your boots. But it is, it's not, not the job of taxpayers to, to subsidize that. No. And, and the other thing is, you know, do these deals ever come with built-in conditions? You know, uh, executive compensation, um, you know, what happens if Ford falls on hard time? Are the taxpayers going to be protected? We haven't been in the past. I mean, I was not, it was good to see at least that Ford had the mining for cobalt put into the deal so that Ontario will be making the batteries, albeit it's, it's kind of ironic because mining is not environmentally friendly. The batteries of these cars are not at all environmentally uh, friendly. So it's uh, the whole thing's a bit of an oxymoron yeah they do seem to look the other way when it involves an electric vehicle with parts down further down the production line on the, on the supply chain there's something that's not friendly but you know the, the problem with the strings attached on these uh alex is sometimes it actually makes it harder for companies to do business they get bound up in so many job and location requirements they can't they can't even run their business and it sort of undermines their their viability so you kind of you're you're cutting off your nose to spite your face the last thing i'd say though is um you know Every industry needs help right now, or almost every industry. The fairest way to do it, I hate to beat this drum, is if you just cut taxes. You're not playing favorites. You're not picking who gets help and who doesn't. You just make it easier for everybody. And you don't have to get into this game where one industry says, oh, well, they got help. But what about me? Me too. Me too. Uh, I, you just have to make costs uh, lower across the board. It's the only fair way to do it. 
Yeah, it's not going to, uh, though, you know, when you've got to fulfill your talking points and you want to be able to say, hey, look what we did, you know, on the on the press releases, you never say, hey, because we gave a half a billion dollars, we were able to do X, Y and Z. It's just we created 5000 jobs. And again, when you're paying a company to create jobs, that is not job creation. No, exactly. There's really not much distinction between uh, those jobs and and jobs in government. Right. People, I think, recognize that we have a private sector. It generates wealth. We tax it. And then we use that money to pay for things like hospitals and roads mm-hmm. and schools and teachers and stuff. Uh, but but if you start creating a private sector, quote unquote, jobs that are actually paid for with taxpayer money, um, they're not generating new wealth. They're not generating new revenue. When th- those people pay taxes, they're now just giving you a rebate on the tax money that was used to create the job. So it, it's actually an illusion to say that governments are creating a, a private sector job. Right. Well, governments don't create jobs. That's what the private sector is supposed to do on its own. Aaron, we'll see where this one takes us. uh, And I appreciate your insight. Thanks a lot. That's Aaron Woodrick with the uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. So we'll see where the dollar leads on this. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk to the doctor, the numbers surging. And of course, Thanksgiving weekend being called the make and break part of this pandemic's second wave. So we'll talk to him. Just after this, here on Point, I'm Alex Pearson, and this is Global News Radio. Well, I never talk about Trump, or I avoid it at all costs, but I did find this interesting. Because when it comes to, uh, when it came to his first race to the White House, I predicted he'd win day one when he jumped in. I never strayed for it, you know, from that point, despite relentless mocking. And and it turned out I was right. This time... I'm not really sure what's going to happen. I'm not confident at all. And if we're to believe the mainstream polls, then Joe, Joe Biden's going to win in a landslide. But then uh, along came Polly. Do you remember Polly? Polly is the uh, first artificial intelligence pollster. Uh, and it predicted the liberal minority within two seats, the last provincial election, Brexit, and more than 20 other election and referendums around the world. And now Polly says Donald Trump's been uh, seeing a bit of momentum. In fact, got a 17-vote jump in the last couple of days and is surging in all the very important electoral votes. Aaron Kelly is CEO at Advent Symbolics. Uh, and Aaron, when I saw your note, I mean, I was pretty shocked because the most reliable U.S. pollster, politics polls, has Biden in a landslide in Pennsylvania, Iowa, even Florida. But apparently, Pauly doesn't agree. Yeah, I was shocked when I woke up uh, the day after the Trump had kind of thumbed his nose at the stimulus packages. And I woke up, turned on my computer, looked at the map and saw that Polly had seen a jump of 17 electoral college votes overnight. And overwhelmingly, I mean, we saw shifts all across the country. So the 17 was a net positive increase uh, for the president. And We saw the biggest uh, momentum came in those swing states, particularly Florida, where um, people really, I mean, there was was a lot of reason why people, people liked the fact that he was battling back COVID because of course, Florida was hot hit, uh, hard hit by COVID, but they also really liked his uh, stance on the stimulus spending or his, his reluctance to do that stimulus spending. And so when everybody else, and that and that's where it's important. A lot of the media, we you know, they come from a centrist point of view, but on the in America, people are just slightly more on a conservative side. And when they see that kind of thing, they they liked seeing that the president was standing up and questioning the stimulus. 
Okay, and then you know, you know, he got out on his, um, you know, at the hospital. He stood there. He wanted that shot of himself looking very strong, COVID-free. He beat it. And, you know, there's a reason he is. He does stuff like that. It plays very well to his base. Um, the the of course the. Uh, debates were last night, the VP debates. They'll be forgotten by probably the time we're talking now. However, uh, people really wanted to see how Camilla uh, Harris would do if she, you know, the bar was very, set very low for her. I mean, she basically just had to perform and be able to keep up. And um, of course, Mike Pence, uh, I thought he did actually on the substantive side of things, did quite well. And then, of course, the distraction of the fly overtook that but what did Polly tell you about the, the performance to, you know aside from the fly well Polly would agree with you that Pence did very well in fact he he won the the debate in the sense that the electoral college votes went up another three points following the vice presidential debate and here but here's what's even more important Mike Pence appeals very well to the centrist vote so mm -hmm. whereas Donald Trump appeals to more people on the far right or further on the right uh, they worship him. <laughs> um, uh, Mike Pence actually appeals very much to a centrist vote. So we actually noticed, you know, that we were seeing out of Polly that it would be very interesting for the Republicans to bring Mike Pence out more to appeal to that centrist vote and save Trump for a different audience. They are appealing to different groups, which is interesting for them, whereas the Harris and Biden camps are appealing to, there's less diversity there. So right. Pence is actually helping the Republican ticket more than Harris is helping the Democratic ticket. Certainly. I mean, he he clocked her on things like foreign policy. Obviously, the COVID part of it was not going to go well for him, albeit he managed to kind of stay the course on it. But on things like foreign policy um, and, and economy and stuff like that, he was able to, to um, land a few really good blows that she just simply couldn't respond to. But it is it is. Not the popular vote that counts, um, as, as much as that really um, upsets people because they always look, refer to you know Hillary Clinton really won it because she won the popular vote. It, it all comes down to the electoral vote. That's exactly it. And so we haven't seen any change in the popular vote in the last three days. It has stayed. Biden is at 54 percent and the president's at 46 percent. Where we're seeing the volatility is in the electoral colleges and particularly in those swing states that are still up for grabs, Pennsylvania, Florida. Last night we saw the most activity in North Carolina, uh, which again is getting at that more centrist vote. Um, so, so while we're, and, and keep in mind that when we saw that 17 uh, vote jump yesterday, mm -hmm. um, th that was 1% change in, in, in Florida. That was just a 1% change and it caused a 17 uh, vote jump. So it doesn't take much in those swing states to really change things. No, but you know, a day in politics is a lifetime and we're still a long way out before uh, the, the vote on uh, November 3rd. And so what then happens now? I mean, because if I'm guessing or, or looking at Polly's findings, there seems to be a bit of momentum and wind at uh, Trump's back. Yeah, we're seeing some sleeper issues here. If um, if the Republicans, if there's a vaccine that comes out, yeah. I don't know if it'll come by November, but if it does, that's going to really help Trump a lot. Um, if Biden has, because there's still a lot of talk, we're seeing people are uh, concerned about Biden's age and whether or not he's kind of losing it mentally, uh, like, mm -hmm. you, you know, intellectually. Um, so because he is not as good a debater as Trump, we would say Trump 
should actually should very much participate in the next debate. Um, if Biden seems to slip in his memory or something like that that could help the president. But right now, it is true that Biden is leading both in the Electoral College and the popular vote. It's just saying that it's not over for Trump yet. We still see he has the ability to turn things around. It's great to be able to watch this day to day. Right. And, and then how does it break down again so people understand the difference between good old fashioned call polling and, um, you know, online polling? What's the difference in how Polly goes about, um, you know, doing its polling? Well, the one big difference is that she's got 300,000 Americans in her sample. So it's the same methodology in terms of sampling, getting a representative sample of the population, a randomized controlled sample. Uh, but she's doing it on social media. So she's got a huge sample. Uh, she's doing each electoral college, so not just the popular vote. And most importantly, she's able to understand what's driving the change. She can analyze the conversations. We're not collecting any names. But she just analyzes what it is that's causing people to change their minds so that she can figure it. And she does it uh, state by state. So right. she's got, if you go to our map and you put a mouse over on the state, you can see what is what is the main issue in that state that day. And she up, and she updates it every, we're doing it every morning automatically. So did she, just before I let you go, Erin, did she have any reaction to Kamala uh, Harris's um, facial gestures and the, you know, I'm talking now, any, anything to that? Yes, the I'm I'm talking. You're interrupting me. Uh, that that played well for her. So um, yeah. Oh, all right. I had heard it hadn't played well for her. Right. I started to irritate well, it, me for a while, but nonetheless. Yeah. Well, it it's you know it irritates some people and and bolsters others. But overall, uh, you know, in terms of the conversation, people like seeing her stand up to that, particularly because of the way the first debate was you know right. the interruptions either way at least there was some substance to the uh, insanity to that debate last night uh <laughs> and we'll stay tuned to the next all right Aaron, i'll be uh, very curious to see what paulie does over the next couple of weeks i'll keep an eye on it thanks for joining us great thanks alex that's Aaron kelly ceo of advanced symbolics so we will see and watch what paulie projects coming up doug ford said he would get rid of corporate welfare in 2018 and yet ontario taxpayers now paying 300 million plus to an american company this is all to create jobs but if we're paying for job creation how is that job creation and is the green energy investment actually worth the cost we will talk about that coming up next stay with us here on point i'm alex pearson and this is global news radio it is called the Great Barrington Declaration, and this started with three epidemiologists out of Harvard, Oxford, and Stanford, and they're pushing back against popular opinion and no longer support uh, these draconian shutdown measures because they feel that it does more harm than good. And since they've spoken out, 6,000 scientists and doctors around the world have signed on, and then, of course, this thing went public, and it's getting thousands of signatures around the world. And right now, and I get the sense that tomorrow we probably will hear something from the Premier, but the City of Toronto and the province have been in a standoff over this issue of shutting things down. The Premier arguing, you know, he needs data before he shuts down businesses and kills further jobs. But he also backs it up saying, you know, we haven't seen the data yet to justify it. Dr. Matt Strauss is a critical care doctor, assistant professor also of medicine at Queen's University. Enjoy this now. Good to have you, doctor. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. You signed on to something that goes much against the you know popular opinion. Why? Um, I, based on uh, the 
the medical literature that has been published looking at the effect of lockdowns. Uh, the, mm. the best paper on this topic was published in The Lancet by researchers from Toronto. It's a Dr. Chowdhury who published it this summer that showed that uh, in terms of real world data, in terms of what happened between countries that did lockdown or didn't lockdown, there was no effect of lockdowns, no positive effect of lockdowns on COVID-19 mortality. So it's clear to me that um, we were acting based on models, mathematical models that have turned out to be largely erroneous. And when we look at the actual hard outcomes, um, the lockdowns don't seem to have been efficacious in the way that we hoped. I think that there's um, there's there's understood public health strategies and knowledge before, prior to this pandemic. But what would we do if we were in a situation like this? And you can you can find those documents uh, on the Ontario government website and on the World Health Organization website. And nobody thought that lockdowns would be a good strategy uh, in a situation like this. If you there's a famous tweet from Patty Haydu where she's yeah. basically in a group hug with public health uh, officials in, uh, in Ottawa on March 13th. And it, so it wasn't from public health that this idea of locking down came. People on Twitter were screaming at them, what are you doing? You have to lock down. We have to be, we have to behave more like um, the Chinese communist strategy. So I, I think I'm uh, with the Great Barrington Declaration, I'm standing with very, um, very prominent scientists and epidemiologists to say this is the science. This is the strategy that we should have used all along. Uh, and yeah, I, I think we, we can't follow the crowd. We have to follow the science. Well, I expect, and, and I got the sense in listening to the press conferences with Dr. Williams today, and then, of course, you hear Dr. Davila speak on a daily basis. I mean, Dr. Davila has been sh- calling for a shutdown now for days. Um, Dr. Williams uh, clearly indicated that something has been uh, decided. It'll probably be announced tomorrow. But the premier has been rather, um, you know, he doesn't want to shut down. The bottom line is these businesses will not survive. And that is real hurt for real people. You'll get people, doctor on one side, as you well know, saying, well, you know, what's more important, your health or money? For me, it's, it's both because you can have financial ruin that causes health issues but and the health of a society, but you can also have health issues with a virus. But if we learn to live with it, how to navigate it, and frankly, if people would just take responsibility and start using their head, we could probably uh, be doing a lot better than we are right now. Uh, yeah, that's that's my position. That's the, the position of the Great Barrington Declaration. I think that, you know, everywhere on cable news and, and elsewhere, um, people are very focused on how many COVID cases there are and how many COVID deaths there are. But nobody's mm-hmm. keeping a running tally of all the other deaths and all the other causes of deaths that uh, have happened. So I've been horrified um, working in hospitals. I, I have been admitting uh, elders from nursing homes who have been under lockdown and socially isolated and depressed. Some of them have stopped eating. Um, mm-hmm. Some were relying on their family to feed them. Um, and now that's not happening. And I've been admitting elders to the hospital with starvation. And that's inhumane. Um, it breaks my heart. And they, they didn't die. So they're not counted as a death. They're not counted as a case of COVID. Um, but we have to pay attention to all the harms that lockdown strategies might cause. And and there's been so many that I can that I can rattle off. So three times more Canadians are contemplating suicide today than three years mm-hmm. ago. Um, the homicide rate is up markedly in the United States. We don't have data for Canada yet. Um, and like you said, the economic costs, we've spent more uh, on the lockdown strategy and paying healthy people to stay at home, in my view, unnecessarily. Um, we've spent more on all that, $300 billion, than we spent on the entirety of fighting World War II. 
uh, in inflation-adjusted dollars. And it's just, it's not sustainable. And, and, it, and it didn't work. If the lockdown had worked, we wouldn't be contemplating it again. Right. And is this a growing um, consensus on the front lines? I mean, the, no, there's no question those in the front lines, nurses and doctors, uh, those who work in hospitals bear the brunt of this long term care. Um, but is it a growing consensus that, you know, we you know what we're doing now, we know who's getting targeted and that the lockdowns are not the right approach? So in my view, it is growing, but it was already the majority opinion. As I referenced those documents um, in terms of the physicians and nurses that I work with, um, uh, my estimate is that about 80% of them are, are broadly uh, in line with this, this sort of thinking. And, mm-hmm. I, and I honestly believe that public health experts are as well. Like, like I said, there's been kind of mass panic, and it's the same mass panic that caused people to crawl over each other to buy toilet paper in March. Right. Um, uh, so I, I, I think it's, um, it's not actually dangerous. We live, in a, we live in a free and democratic society, so I do think that we have to start finding our voices and, and, and speaking to the crowd. Um, so it, it has always been a majority opinion among the doctors and nurses that I work with. And I, I and even that majority opinion, I think, is growing as we've as we've learned more over the last six months. I mean, a lot of the decisions being made now are political um, and they're being made at a knee jerk um, kind of pace. The one thing we won't know, and I don't know when we'll know it, uh, not until the investigations and uh, commissions and all the rest of it are held, is how many people actually died of covid or because uh, they had heart issues or cancers, or maybe they had an underlying condition. Um, but do you think the number is far lower than what gets reported? Um, and I would say that on both sides of the border. Really because certainly, because, yeah. Sorry? I would say that also on both sides of the border. Yeah, I, I think it's really hard to know. Um, the, the way these statistics get tabulated vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And and in the hospital, where I've practiced for the last eight years, when I sign a death certificate and I, and I, I the physician who's there at the time um, certifies the cause of death, we, we've always been using educated guests. Um, so the, it, it's almost a question to which there is no good and ultimate answer. So many jurisdictions, I, I believe in Canada, if you died and you had a COVID, uh, a COVID test positive uh, recently, then you're counted as a COVID death. But I don't know if we're ever going to go through with a fine-tooth comb to, to figure out if that was appropriate or not. So we, we just may have to accept the unknown in that way. Well, that would be unfortunate because, um, you know, the, the bottom line is pe- people have the right to know. And there's a there's a, a growing population that don't trust what they're being heard. There was polling done on this, I think it was yesterday or the day before, showing that 60% of Canadians do not trust what they're being told um, from those in charge. And I think that's growing because the data isn't being shown. Those in charge are not actually having to show their work. Um, I... I hesitate myself to make a blanket statement against you know those in charge. I think um, I think that I think that we're all suffering from too much social media and uh, <laughs> and too much cable news. I think there I think um, I think that there is a lot of panic that's gone around, uh, and I I don't want to speak. Um, about any particular public official or or, or not. No, I'll, not. You can let me do the editorializing. Yeah, but okay, well, let me ask good. you this. If, if, if you were in charge um, and those who are part of this uh, Barrington Declaration, what would their suggestion be then to live with this, function with this, while protecting people, keeping kids in school and protecting the vulnerable? How should we be doing this? Right. So um, you, you said it exactly right. It's about protecting the vulnerable. I mentioned the $300 billion that we spent keeping healthy people locked down in their homes. Those healthy people, so if you're under 35, um, 
you're, and you get COVID, you're still more likely to die in a car accident this year. And, and that same one in 10,000 risk that you'll have in a, from a car accident next year, and you had it last year as well. So the, the, the Great Barrington Declaration is about just recognizing that you're, you're very unlikely to die from COVID if you're under 35. And even if you're older, if you have no medical problems, you're very unlikely to die of it. So the, the, um, the suggestion is we let young people and, and older healthy people go about, live their lives, keep the economy afloat. And with all of that economic activity, we take that $300 billion that we spent on everybody and focus it where it matters, on vulnerable people. So um, making hospitals more um, resilient to this sort of thing, making uh, nursing homes more uh, humane and better equipped. Um, so we, we, would, we would still continue to advise um, uh, you know, social distancing and masking and hand washing uh, for those folks who are vulnerable and for the people who care for them. Um, but we would we would urge uh, everyone else. Sorry, I I don't want to go. It's important that we all come up with a plan that we agree on and we do it together as Canadians. So mm-hmm. this is if I was in charge. That's what I would urge uh, folks to do. I'm I'm not in a position to urge people to to disobey the public health guidance right. when it comes down or when it comes down. But if I was in charge or any of the scientists that signed the Great Barrington Declaration, that's what we would propose. If you're under 50 or older and healthy, go on, live your lives, get back to normal. Yeah, be smart, use your head. I mean, the bottom line is 300 billion, you think about that much money, what we could have done for mental health care um, and hospital care, uh, we could have fixed almost everything. Uh, and yet here we are going backwards. Well, um, I guess we'll have to see doctor tomorrow what the premier announces and uh, I, and we'll go from there. But I tend to agree that the sad reality of the situation is we're not going to know for a very, very long time the true cost of this to mental health, economic health uh, and society at large because, um, you know, this thing's going to take a long time to, I think, uh, show its true colors. I appreciate you joining us. We'll chat again because I, I, I'll be interested to see where this goes. Terrific. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday to Friday, 630 to 10 on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point on Global News Radio.